Epiphany is a word that means revelation or unveiling or something like that. The season of Epiphany in the church celebrates the revelation of Christ to the Gentiles, um, which is really a very simple New Testament word. It really just means everybody else but the Jews. And the, the notion is that God had chosen and raised up a people, but that that people were to be salt and light to the rest of the earth. And, and in the coming of Christ, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, that this then extends to everyone. And so we've been looking these past few weeks at, at the revelation of Christ in our day through the stewardship of our lives. And I don't know how much I've actually said about this during the series, but the real underlying vision for this series is this, that uh, for those of us in this room who are middle age, for our young years of being Christian and for most of our lives, apologetics had a certain um, feel to it and a certain kind of texture to it. And that texture didn't come out of the blue, it came out of a, a basic Christendom society where most people knew religion, probably even had mild affection for religion. It, it was just sort of in the center of culture. And in that kind of setting, um, knowledge was prized. Like, can you prove to me the resurrection really happened? Or can you show me how it is that the scripture is authoritative? What do you know? How did the canon come to be? And so just think of all the kind of apologetics that we all were raised with. Well, today, that knowledge doesn't go away, and it's not even secondary in a ranking, but if you can think of like a train, it's second often in sequence. And so you might say, well, second to what? And second to seeing realness and goodness in God's people. That for most people today, based on uh, every study that I'm aware of that looks at these kinds of things, the number one thing today that creates kind of a plausibility in someone's heart, someone who's suspicious or cynical, not sure about religion, not sure about Christianity, not sure about God, the thing that makes that first plausible so that they might start digging into what we think of as normal apologetics is they see something real, something true, something good, something that's making a difference in the lives of others. And this then was the underlying vision for what we've been doing these last few weeks, that the revelation of Christ might happen in our day through the stewardship of the various aspects of our lives. And this morning we turn towards the stewardship of relationships. So think with me for a minute of all the relationships we have. I mean, our lives are embedded in a, a, a web, a network of relationships from families and friends and neighbors and schoolmates and coworkers and church friends and our daily casual acquaintances. Our lives are defined by relationships. And so like any other aspect of stewardship, when we think of the stewardship of relationships, it begins with the idea that relationships are a gift from God. There's something given to us for us to mutually steward. So now, uh, I want you to um, not think with me so much here, but I want you to feel with me how much of your life, either implicitly or explicitly, taught you that I have to care for myself. You may have even actually been taught, you have to look out for yourself because no one else is going to look out for you, right? 
So just think of all the implicit and explicit messages you were given like that. But now I want you to look around this room and picture that everybody in this room is looking out for you. Everybody has your best interests at heart. And they positively would do anything for you. So that we flip it and the reverse is true, where you almost can be careless in the careful love of others. Now, something like that is the vision of the New Testament. It doesn't set aside human responsibility. It sets aside a kind of craziness in us that makes us harm others because we think we have to take care of ourselves, or at least to be callous towards others because we're too busy taking care of ourselves. But what if we actually knew that our families and friends and co your, your co-workers at work actually cared for you, that you weren't just something to trample on so they could get where they wanted to go? This is one of those moments where I always want to say, I wonder if God's smart. I don't actually think the average human being attributes intelligence to God. We, in, we attribute intelligence to Hawking or maybe Steve Jobs, or, you know, we, 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 we attribute genuine competence to people like that. But actually, even those who say they worship God, I'm, I'm actually not sure how many people actually carry around in them that God is smart, that he's competent, that he knows what he's talking about, and that human beings would actually flourish if we lived caring for each other. That that's not a burden, it's not a legalism, it's not religious that it's actually like kneaded into the human condition, like yeast and dough, it's kneaded into it by God who's actually smart. And you see this right from the get-go in, in the, the Genesis covenant, you might say, where their human beings are to serve each other in all of creation. And then in so doing, they would bring out the God colors of others, the divine purposes in others. Again, this is, why we, this is why we celebrate human beings like John Wooden. Yeah, he won, I can't remember standing here now, 13, 14, 16 national championships, something like that. And he gets celebrated for that. If you don't know who John Wooden was, he was a basketball coach at UCLA for decades. But Wooden is not primarily, especially after his death, he is not primarily celebrated for his wins. He is celebrated for how he treated human beings. These boys who would come to UCLA from all over the country, and the way he treated people in his classrooms. He's enormously celebrated as someone who got this right. And you might know teachers or mentors or a, a pastor or someone in the church who has done this for you. And so if we start digging into, well, what is it, what's, what's happening when this goes right or when we see this in someone like uh, Wooden? And I think the answer is that love is at the core of stewardship and of relationships. And that's the reason this is the second great command, to love our neighbors. And love simply means that from somewhere within us, we have the honest intention to want the good for others and to do it in action. And so it's something like investing in others. Or the Bible gives us this beautiful picture. Now, now again, just think with me here for a minute. How counterintuitive this is to today's culture. But the Bible actually puts forward this beautiful picture of taking on voluntary limitations. 
So let me put it in different words. You would volunteer to limit yourself. You say, well, like what, Todd? Well, like not eating meat sacrificed to idols if it would stumble your brother. Right? Remember that passage in Paul? It's such an awkward kind of passage. We don't have meat sacrificed to idols hanging out at Safeway. At least not that we know of. Right? That is one of those sort of obscure New Testament texts that gets lost. But it's actually enormously profound. Paul's saying what you do to like really care for each other, to bring out the God colors in each other, to create human space in which you can all flourish, is that you voluntarily limit yourself. And you're okay with it. You just, you just don't do it. Or as Paul said to the Galatians, you use your freedom to serve others. So the notion here is something like this. If you can picture in your mind 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. So 12 and 14 kind of get all the controversy because they're about the gifts. And 13 we read at weddings, right? Can you picture that? So 12, 13, and 14. Well, essentially what Paul's saying is for the gifts to thrive and to do their God-ordained best, they have to be saturated in and rooted in love. Otherwise, remember that passage? You're just a clanging gong. And we can say the same thing about relationships, that in the same way that love makes the gifts work as intended, love is the overall foundation for the stewardship of relationships. Which then for me, as I've thought about this this week, raised two questions for me. Who would do this and who could? Like who, who would live into these things that seem like ideals and who could? So let's start with who would. And the kind of person I think who would live into this is those who naturally see the dignity in others. Because here's the deal, honoring and treasuring, like if that's what's real in our heart, honoring and treasuring, that naturally eliminates most sinful things. Like, just off the top of my head, this pectoral cross is treasured by me. Because when I was getting consecrated bishop, I didn't have one. I didn't even know you're supposed to have one. And Archbishop Kalini from Rwanda, standing next to me, says, Todd, where is your cross? And I'm like, uh, <laughs> I don't have one. Well, one of my favorite bishops, Sandy Green, was standing next to us, and he overheard it. He took this off. As far as I know, these are real jewels. Lord knows how much this costs took it off, and he handed it to me. He said, here, I want you to have this. And afterwards, I said, okay, here you go. You can have it back. And he said, no, it's yours to keep. And every time I take this off, it has a special little gray bag I put it in. I remember how, like, treasured this is. So no one has to tell me to care for this. Are you feeling me here? Honoring and treasuring naturally sets aside sinful things and naturally calls in to it a caring for. Like, I'm quite sure there's a law on, this, on the books of the state of California that says that I can't um, engage in child neglect. But can I just say that when Debbie and I had Jonathan and then later Carol that we didn't need a law to tell us to feed our children? Why? Because treasuring and honoring naturally sucks goodness up into it 
and eliminate sinfulness. So if you find yourself, I don't know, swearing at people, backbiting, dismissing, whatever, can I just suggest to you this morning that instead of trying to stop that behavior through kind of a grunting moralism, that you begin to ask yourself, why don't I treasure? Why don't I honor this person? Because the grunting moralistic behavior, even if you get it right, you're just going to become a Pharisee. And when you get it wrong, you're just going to be filled with guilt and shame. But if you can just begin to do the daily intuitive work of just being present with God and others and, and looking for a honoring and treasuring, you will automatically become what you dream to be. On the other hand, of course, contempt, marginalizing, hate, and dehumanizing is the well from which all manner of evil is drawn. I mean, you don't have to think any farther than our current political discourse. I mean, I can't be the only one in this room who, on the one hand, like, wants to know these guys that are and gals that are running for president, and I, I kind of want to know what's in their head and stuff, but I can't stand to watch the debates. They drive me crazy. I can't be the only one who feels that way. Like, I seriously, I mean, I seriously do. I want to have, I want to cast an intelligent vote later in the year, but they drive me nuts with their, their, de, their dehumanizing rhetoric. It's like part and parcel of the deal. I have to dehumanize you so I can then say this thing about you I want to say. And can I say that it's just not politicians? I mean, get out your smartphone right now and go to Yahoo or something, look at an article, and then if you dare, read the comments. If you dare. Like it's worse than pornography, right? I mean, the hate that fills our social space does not come out of nowhere. It comes out of a prior dehumanizing. It comes out of a prior contempt. You can't talk like that unless you first hold up someone in contempt. These words don't come out of the blue. They come out of a context. So that's who would. Well, who could? Who could actually become the kind of person for whom drawing out the God colors of others is normal. Well, treasuring requires us being present and alert as we're with others. So we, we could be the kind of person who would, but if, we, if we're going to have the ability, if, if we can do it, we have to learn some basic new habits of first just being present to life, secondly being alert to others in the various aspects of their journey. Maybe they're depressed. Maybe they're anxious. Maybe they're worried. Whatever's going on with them, we have to learn to notice it and be with them. And I want to say that this is something that has to be practiced off the spot so that it's natural on the spot. That is to say that noticing does not come um, intuitive to most of us. Most of us are so fragmented that noticing what's right in front of our face is not real. I mean, sorry, not normal to notice what's real. So sometimes people ask me, Todd, why at Holy Trinity do you guys practice silence? Or sometimes people will notice that our overall vibe is sort of contemplative. And so let me just answer. It's not marketing-based. It's not a niche. It's 
not trying to create a brand. It's not trying to distinguish ourselves from other churches. It's that I believe in the core of my being that we need to learn to sit still and be quiet and notice. Nothing else in our life affords us this possibility for the vast majority of us. Nothing at school, nothing at work, not even in most of our homes. So this is a kind of training of our souls off the spot so that on the spot we could live out that which we would do. But I just want to say a couple of things here that there are some big challenges, some sort of current cultural challenges we face regarding this. And the first one is the social tension that I see at least between truth and relationships. So that on the one hand, going back to our political discourse, just as an example, that we're kind of willing to squash anybody just to get sort of my truth out there. But again, the biblical vision is that truth ought to point to, try to catch this, truth ought to point to and enable love. This is what Paul means when he says to Timothy, the goal of our instruction is being right. The goal of our instruction is to have power over others. The goal of our instruction is so that you can know something others don't know so that you can win arguments. No, the goal of our instruction is love. That is an odd sentence. I would dare that you've never had a professor say that to you. That the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Can, can we just like see together this morning that Jesus and Paul are teaching, listen to me, from a different basis and with a different outcome in mind? They're not teaching merely to impart knowledge. Now, I'm a professor. I value both receiving knowledge and imparting it. I'm not putting that down. I'm simply saying that something different is happening here. And it's not that our normal professor-student relationships are bad. It's that they're only a subset of what's going on in Jesus and Paul. They're a needed subset. They're an important subset. But Paul's got something else going on here, that those who heard his instruction would love from a pure heart with a good conscience and a sincere faith. Or as Hebrews says, we hold fast to the confession of our hope. Can you hear in that sort of a creedal, confessional Christianity? And I don't mean... I don't mean that in the um, uh, like specific definitional sense, but this notion of there's something we hold together, that we, we hold something together. But let us then consider how we can stir up in each other love and good deeds. See, this is always where this goes. Because love aims at and desires the truth. This is what Paul means in 1 Corinthians 13, that love rejoices in the truth. Or when he writes how love informs how we speak the truth, when he says to the Ephesians, speak the truth in love. Why, Paul? Why? Why speak the truth in love? Because he says, this is how we'll all grow into the fullness of Christ. Well, secondly, besides having this social tension between truth and relationships of, you know, feeling like we have to choose one or the other rather than seeing how they facilitate one another, we've got our tech challenges. And again, as I always say, I'm not a Luddite. I'm not, not down on technology. It, it just is what it is. 
But it is increasingly making us difficult to live into this biblical vision because less and less of our interactions are face-to-face. And I've already mentioned the talk that happens online that would never happen if we were sitting across the table from somebody. And I see increasingly something that's making us increasingly self-centered and having even kind of an addictive need to be noticed and to be seen as living an interesting life. Now again, I just want to say, I am not down on Instagram, not in the slightest. I'm not down on Facebook. Not, I'm not down on any of that stuff. I just want to try to, again, keep it real that so much of that is driven by especially young people wanting people to know I live an interesting life. I'm going places, I'm eating things, I'm seeing things. And I want to be recognized as somebody who possesses an interesting life. But as somebody who spends a lot of time with undergraduate students every week, can I just tell you that the more this happens, even with the barrage of Instagram and Facebook posts, one of the number one fears that we find on university campuses is the fear that I am actually unseen. Even with the barrage, no one actually sees me. No one actually notices me or understands my uniquenesses. And then thirdly, uh, probably most of us in this room, I know for me, um, I grew up in a very, very dysfunctional um, sort of alcoholic home. Um, When I was young, my dad was an, uh, an alcoholic. Most of his life, he was a compulsive gambler. I mean, God, you know, rest in peace, Lyle Hunter. But it's just the truth. I mean, he literally destroyed his life as a compulsive gambler. So I know what it is to grow up in a dysfunctional home with both alcoholism and the codependency that goes around it. And the vast majority of us in this room, if we didn't grow up in a home like that, we've at least been around dysfunctional or hurtful relationships. And unfortunately, we all carry that into who would and who could. Are you feeling me here? So even when we have the best of intentions, we find ourselves acting like out of spaces within us that we don't want to act out of, but we find ourselves doing it. So what do we do? Well, our readings this morning give us a way forward, and I'm going to move through this pretty quickly. Romans 12, as near as I can tell, is really just straightforward Christian ethics on relationships uh, for the purpose of caring for and building up the whole community. Um, Again, this is very clear. The, The Greek here is very difficult. I mean, Paul's difficult in a lot of places, but the Greek here in Romans is very difficult. It's just all these little short staccato sayings, and you don't have verbs or participles that you normally have to help you connect these things. It's like Paul's just saying, this is what it means to live in a healthy community and build up a healthy community. And of course, love heads the list and is the foundational ideal. So look at your text. Love must be sincere. And that just simply means, you know, coming out of a true space in us. And, and, and it also has the notion that it's not just an aimless emotion. That what makes love sincere are these concrete things that he lists, such as being devoted to one another in love or honoring one another above yourselves. Meaning, be quick to defer to others and quick to celebrate others. And we don't have time in a sermon like this, but 
The New Testament is full. There are scores of, of what we sometimes call the one another's of the New Testament. They're everywhere, scores of them. You've all read them, things like be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Be at peace with one another. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Live in harmony with one another. And again, we can either hear those things as religious ideals that we need to strive to achieve. Please listen to me. We need to strive to achieve through an, through an inner life that actually is not aligned with them. We're not actually the kinds of people who could or would. And this is what drives us all crazy. And so then it kind of leaves the question, well, then what is the kind of life from which this can come? And we read in John 15, the, the context there, we didn't read it this morning, but the context is, you know what John 15 is famous for? Abiding in the vine and drawing life from Christ. And this is the reality in which the kind of relational ethic that we see in the New Testament is possible. And this, so this is the context for our gospel reading this morning, abiding in the vine. And that, so that Jesus' commands and his teachings, you know, when he showed what was real and true, that this would come out of something that's essentially relational. And this is why, again, if you look at your gospel passage, we can see that the ground of Jesus' joy is having been loved by his Father. That's the ground of his own joy. And he wants us to have that same joy that is first grounded in Jesus' love for us and his, well, his first followers and us, and that out of that would become a joyful obedience that would be good for the rest of the community. So for Jesus, again, this is simple logic, but I want you to get it because it's really important. Jesus was loved by his Father, and out of that there was a joyful obedience. Got it? Jesus loves us and his dream. His dream is that from his love of us, we would find joy and a joyful obedience. That's what he means when he says, these things I command you so that, so there's the logic in Jesus' head, these things I command you so that you will love one another as I have loved you. Now, this could be room for some beautiful Trinitarian theology that we don't have time for, but essentially just picture this eternal Trinitarian love. Before there was space and time as we know it, this trinity of beings existing in love for one another. And it's out of this that Jesus says things like, as the Father loved me. And then Jesus is this same Trinitarian reality expressed to humans. Now, I know this can get really deep really fast, and to be sure, I can't do justice to all the theological and ethical complexities that are involved in human relationships, not in a 20-minute sermon. But it's actually not important, because what's in view here actually has the nature of simplicity to it. it has, it's meant to have a ring of simplicity. As the Father, so I. So that's very simple. It's a, it's a quite simple analogy. Obviously, lots of complexities surrounding it, but the analogy itself is very simple. And, and it's meant to just form within us a commitment to Jesus' worldview. As the Father loved I, so I loved you. 
Out of the Father's love for me and mine for him came a joyful obedience, serving others. I want that same thing for you. That's my dream for you, that out of my love for you, you would find joy. And that joy would overflow in obedience, not only just to me, but in a love for one another. So it requires actually, at the end of the day, I don't think something complex. I think it involves something really simple, a decision to follow Jesus and to take up his aims. It's actually an invitation. There stands before us this morning an invitation to follow Jesus in our relationships and to take up Jesus' aims in our relationships, both with the Trinitarian God and with each other, and to learn how to do life from him. So this morning, as we come to our quiet time, I want to invite you, as I said earlier, to practice noticing, to maybe stop with me here and bow your head and close your eyes and bring yourself to both a physical and inner stillness, And see if you can begin to wonder that these things, at the end of the day, aren't difficult to understand. Really what they are is difficult to want to do, and therefore to do. So ask yourself, what do I typically want in relationships? Or maybe there's a particular relationship right now that you're struggling with. And you could ask yourself, what do I want in this relationship? So as you're quiet here for a moment, just bring one of those two things before your mind. And as you're quiet, just begin with the spirit to notice what's real. Just begin with noticing, becoming alert to what's really real.